Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of This Is Your Captain Speaking. I have another Andy on today, but there's plenty of Andys within Andy's name as well. I've got Andy Andrews on here. Um, so I'm also Andrew by name, actually, that's like my, my but the name that only, only my mother calls me. But uh, so Andy, really pleased to have you on. Andy's the uh, team leader marketing at Apunt. And um, we're going to get into what Apunt do now in a minute, but we'll just take a look at uh, Andy's profile real quick before we get started. So Andy was a director of marketing at Lighted Marketing for seven years, then went into marketing automation and was direct response copywriter uh, for his old company, which he built up, andyregarandrews.com. And now for the past almost seven years as well, so six years and seven months, Andy has been the team lead of marketing over at, uh, at Apunct. Really excited to have you on today because I'm really looking forward to digging into the marketing automation piece because it's also a little part of my background as well, having built marketing automation platforms because I didn't have any money to afford one at one point, um, and and being involved in many different platforms throughout the years as well. Really excited about that. So Andy, really glad to have you on today. Thank you for that welcome, Andy. You're very welcome. Andy, tell us a little bit about what Apunk do. So Apunk is Austria's market leader in recruitment, and we've been helping candidates and clients find their perfect matches for 23 years now since uh, Daniel and Marvan founded the company. Daniel is still our CEO to this day, so we're a, a proprietor-run company, and we've grown to more than 200 employees that make 1,600 placements a year, not uh, just at home from our home offices, but also in Linz, Vienna, Graz, Salzburg, and in Tyrol. Very good. So Austria-wide, so for our international listeners, an Austria, Austria-wide uh, recruitment uh, firm. So really cool to have you on, Andy. This is going to be fun. So let, let's start with some questions, right? So tell me a little bit about how you got, first got involved in marketing automation. So I looked into this, it was almost exactly 12 years ago. In 2011, I was uh, working with Enlightened Marketing, and we were just starting out with webinars. And I read this white paper by a guy named Rich Sheffron, I think, or Rich Sheffron. It was 50 pages long. I found it the other day. I was looking for this, and it was called Evergreen Event-Driven Marketing in it was all about how you could record a webinar and then use marketing automation to run the webinar for every cohort, for every group of people who came in. So you'd do performance marketing to fill your list. You would do that permanently. And then uh, every person would go through the webinar and then based on whether they'd seen it or not, get different sequences of emails. And that, I read this report, it entirely blew my mind. And... That was kind of how I got started. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about it. What, what were the first? So you mentioned email marketing there. So all right, let's let's talk about webinars, right? So off the back of a webinar, you were able to put people into a certain stream or a certain cadence based yeah. on whether or not they registered and joined, or registered didn't come, uh, yeah. or, or or they registered last minute, whatever it might be, right? Based on right. everybody's actions, you were then able to put them into the right place. And I remember a time, by the way, if you're going back 12 years or whatever, when the first webinar software was coming out, which was also super clunky, which was like, mm-hmm. what were we using early on? It was like go to webinar and stuff was probably like my, I think it was web- yeah, yeah, like which was which was probably like, if I go back to maybe 2010, mm-hmm. 
we go back that far. I think GoToWebinar was was probably around then WebEx maybe. Well, I, I think we use I string together GoToWebinar with AWeber, which is, I mean, I don't know how it is now. Back then it was the super, super basic email newsletter tool. So you could either send broadcast emails or you could send a fixed, I forgot what it was called, just a fixed script sequence. And somehow I string the whole thing together so that we could bump people from one list to the other but you had duplicate contacts because every list created a new contact record. I, it's wild to me that I did that. <laughs> so the amount of time that we wasted back then, it like I, I when you're talking about those things, like the amount of time that wait that was wasted into hacking, yeah, was to work with one another. Like we were like back then, uh, Zapier didn't exist, right? So like I um, so it was like if you wanted two tools to talk to one another, you need to find a way in which to to enable that. And it was normally true of marketer downloading a list from one and uploading it into another. Mm -hmm. And I remember early on, like I was using Marketo back in the early days. So 2010 mm -hmm. Marketo, which is now, as far as I know, being sunsetted by Adobe or is it Oracle? Adobe or Oracle, yeah, remember. Mm -hmm. um, they, they are after being sunsetted now to say, okay, we're not going to be investing in Marketo any longer. Yeah. But, um, and I remember there was, at that point in time, they had just introduced an integration between Go to webinar and Marketo, and it was like my mind blew. You know, like I was like, "This is <laughs> you're telling me that contacts that have signed up for a webinar are going to flow from one tool to the other. The landing page, etc., is all done on Go to webinar, but you're telling me anybody who fills out that form will go across. They're like, "Yeah, and we could do it within 24 hours." And I'm like, "Oh, with them, <laughs> yeah." That reminded me. So we sold this online course. Uh, with, um, I guess, through AWeber or through newsletters, it was really cheap. So you could just sell it with email without a webinar. And the shopping cart was called One Shopping Cart, but it wasn't linked together with AWeber. So at the end of the purchase sequence or the end of the, the purchase flow, people saw a landing page that said, thanks for signing up. Fill out your email address right here so that we can send you the course materials, which, of course, I don't know, 50% of the people didn't do. And so we had to contact everybody manually and say, hey, did you did you sign up? Did you get the thing you paid for? No. Wow. <laughs> Disaster. So I was like, but did people get back to our email afterwards? Did you get it? <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. And then at one point, we hired somebody in the Philippines uh, to call all of the new purchasers to make sure that they got it. Yeah, that's how we did that. Good gracious. Yeah. The, the things that you used to be able to get away with that you really can't anymore. You know, like, it's like, you would not get away with that anymore. That would definitely, you'd definitely get spanked for that now. Yeah, well, put it, put it, I, don't, I mean, I don't remember exactly, but we probably put the, the names of the purchase. I'm just looking, trying to remember. I think we uh, put the names and telephone numbers of the purchasers in a probably in a Google Sheet or a Google Doc, and then had somebody in the Philippines look at that. I mean, you can't do that anymore, especially if it's in Germany or Austria, Marcus. You're gonna be killed. <laughs> yeah, that's a hangable offense. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Data protection. Yeah. All you need to say that allegedly happened. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. Happened. Yeah. <laughs> 
allegedly you put everything into an Excel file because it probably wasn't Google Sheets back then anyway. Because I don't, I'm not even sure when Google Sheets. I think. I can't. I honestly can't remember, but I do remember. I think, or maybe we gave our virtual assistant the password to anywhere. I can't remember honestly. Oh, set ops are having heart attacks now as well. Yeah, virtual assistant. Oh God, access, <laughs> access to to, to system yeah. tools. Oh dear. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, so it was different times. It was really different times. Like yeah. I, I, it was it was similar for me in that we were we were doing like again. This was 2010, 2011 very early instance of Salesforce and Marketo working together. Mm -hmm. It was a mess, you know, CRM yeah. generally are a mess, but it was even messier then. And yeah. you were trying to get salespeople to use a tool that had never even used a tool before necessarily. Right. You know? So it's not like, it's not like it is now, like let's fast forward like 15 years almost in that most centers, if not all sellers, are used to using some form of CRM tool. Now, do you still need to whip the move? <laughs> exactly. The, so they, they have used it, or they should have been using it, right? You're going from a seller that's gone from like not using, barely even using the computer, like right, right, to in, the, in like between 2000 2010, and then from 2010 onwards, it's like the the birth of the CRM, right? where they need to make sure that all the deals are tracked in there, all leads, all contacts, all organizations tracked, updated properly, et cetera. Right. And so you can imagine the type of change management that needed to go into that organization when we were there trying to implement Salesforce as a CRM. Yeah. Oh, completely. And then also at the same time, trying to send them those early intent signals, right? Of like first party intent data from mm -hmm. that was coming from Marketo. Hey, Somebody has filled out a form on your website. Somebody has downloaded an ebook, or this company, somebody from this company has visited your website. You know, uh, or based on based on the tracking cookie being placed on their machine, which was doable back then, even right? Yeah, back then that's the problem. Yeah, but it's mm -hmm. it's almost funny because okay, like there's there's one part about usage of CRM, etc. But that data, actually, now that I'm talking about it, the data around what. Like that, that intent data, let's call it intent data, like certain people from certain companies visiting websites and then automating that so that it gets a bunch of sales and then sales being able to do something with it. It's a lovely thought, right? It's a, like, it sounds, oh, wow, they can really do stuff with this. But in the majority of organizations that I've worked with, they're like, I have no idea what right yeah. with this. Do you have any experience right. in, in, in that at all? What are your thoughts around, around like packaging data so it's actually be used properly by a sales team? Honestly, our focus is really, really heavily on the B2C side. Uh, so we focus more on, on candidate marketing. And for the sales team, we do, it's not actually a, I guess it's an automated, I don't know. Uh, we, uh, my favorite thing that we do B2, on the B2B side is a print to web campaign where we research the uh, the people we want to contact and then send them a photo and a postcard with a personalized URL. So it, it says there's only one dot com slash Roman Durga. And then they put in the URL and then they come into a dialogue site and then click through. And then we can look at their intent that way. Um, but in terms of packaging data for sales, I have, honestly have not been super successful with that because the, our CRM data is kind of maintained by the sales team. And in the marketing team, we were in a different tool and we're just now starting to kind of put that together. 
What's your stack looking like right now, Andy? Like, what are you, what are you using from a, like a, you just mentioned marketing and sales tools. So the CRM, what CRM are you using? So we moved to HubSpot last year. We were using Entreport before that, which is a smaller automation tool. They're based in Santa Barbara, California. Entreport loved the team there. I was in Santa Barbara years ago and met them really cool people, but they are mostly focused on the, on the U.S. market. And with all of the, the problems with privacy shield and all that jazz, we realized we needed to move to a tool that had a focus on the European market. Um, so we moved to HubSpot last year from Entreport for mostly for B2C marketing and also B2B a little bit. And then as a recruitment company, we have an applicant tracking system, which is kind of the backbone of the business and also our leading system. And it's called Otis. It's a Dutch tool. And we moved to that last year. And so right now our sales team is using Otis as their CRM and the marketing qualified leads are in HubSpot and the sourcing qualified leads. So we have uh, on the B2B side, you know, you have sales and on the B2C side, we have sourcing uh, before the recruiters come in. And so the sourcing qualified leads uh, come in through HubSpot. Got it. Got it. Are, is there, are both of those systems talking to one another or Otis and HubSpot talking to one another or are they both separate systems? They they are. We, we, we had to build the interface ourselves, but it's working pretty well. The Obviously, it, it takes a while before things start to, to work really well. And then there's the sort of the, the, the tricky stuff like, okay, Otis is the leading system, but it's easier for everybody to work in HubSpot. And it's also easier to get people's responses in HubSpot because uh, they can just fill out a form. They don't have to log in. And so that's been an interesting thing that we've been doing the last couple of weeks is figuring out how to capture answers from candidates in HubSpot and get that information into Otis in a way that that's understandable for the sourcing team, which is actually what you were talking about. So we're not giving data to sales so much as sourcing, but it was, it, it, it's been tricky. We've tried a lot of things that haven't worked. Yeah, you're trying, so you, yeah, you're trying to, basically what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to amalgamate all of the data that you have into one source of truth, right? Which is tricky because I've been in a similar position to you. I've worked with an organization that also, that has this recruitment element to us, right? So they, they do software, but they also do recruitment, okay? Um, for for executive assistance. Okay, it was a company mm-hmm. that I worked with for for a year or two. Still a shareholder there. When it works, anyway, they try to build everything in HubSpot. So they what they try to do is the entire in the applicant experience, right? They try to right. make that available through HubSpot with certain automations and such that were built. HubSpot's mm-hmm. just not built for that, right? So no. Because you can't, you can't build a portal for people to, to change their own data. It's just, a, it's not built for that. And how was, so let's, let's focus in then on like the, um, the, the bridge that you've had to build then between Otis and HubSpot. How challenging has that been? If at all, what's been the, what have been the challenges that you've run into? We're using a, a middleware to do that and. The first kind of tricky things that, that we ran into were we built it in, in the sandbox and then we put it on the live system and then we kind of didn't do anything with it because the different teams were just focused on different stuff 
and so we didn't want to kind of he say half ass on the podcast. Yeah, you can. You can say shit at once. That's for me. <laughs> we didn't want to do some half that half ass thing, so we wanted to do something really smart. So we put together the program and we're ready to go. And uh, we had tested the sandbox very, very carefully, but we never tested it on the live system. And the first thing that happened was we, back then, I mean, back then, less than half a year ago, we, we actually did have to pull a list out of OTIS as a CSV or, an, or a, maybe it was an actual file, I can't remember. And we imported it into HubSpot and then pushed the button to, to do the thing. And it overwrote all the data in OTIS. For no. only for, ty- for only for the two hundred people that were in the list, was like, oh my god, what happened? <laughs> and then uh, it took a while um, working with the live data. There, there was there were all kinds of unexpected things like uh, phone numbers with with symbols in them, which made the whole thing crash. So that was kind of tricky at first, uh, but it's working pretty well now. It helps that. The documentation for the HubSpot API is really, it's so clearly structured that even I can understand it. And I'm not really a developer. Um, and so that's working pretty well. What's sometimes a little tricky on the other side is that it's not always easy to find the endpoints for the API or to know ex- exactly what the field actually does in Otis. But we're, we're learning really fast. That's good. I mean, yeah. just, uh, when you when you mentioned there the uh, you know overriding of data, oh, that gives me shivers down my spine. You know, like just yeah, you know, things like that. I, these was only two hundred contacts, right? That's you know, yeah. yeah. But we were able to do a rollback, so that was good. Oh, thank God for Rola rollbacks. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. like that's uh, yeah, yeah. This is uh, it, it ran into a similar situation not too long ago, or bad, um, with an integration between HubSpot and Salesforce. I'm wanting mm-hmm. to move to an account-based model rather than the contact-focused model. Mm-hmm. And then having to make rollouts there, we did it. The sandbox worked out okay. Then did it live, and it just deleted a ton of contacts and and just messed up the entire database. People were working contacts, and then the contacts disappeared, and they had no history of what happened with those. And, and that was a couple of days that added a couple of gray hairs to my head. And it's mm-hmm. so so yeah, it's uh. Again, though, we were able to roll back, thankfully. And uh, yeah, as I said, thank God for rollbacks. And I think the other kind of freaky thing when you switch tools is that I have been working in auth reports and let's say for eight years. I've worked with Enlightened Marketing with auth report and then I was the sort of a consultant for auth report and then we uh, needed a tool that Atom because auth report because it, it was a good batch for us back then. And, and in a lot of ways, Ontraport from the basic functionality is similar to HubSpot, but there's a lot of like small things that are different, that are really different. Like the company object uh, in HubSpot works completely differently than the company object in Ontraport, which is something you don't realize when you're planning and then you start to use the tool and you're like, wait, what, huh? what's happening? Why can't I associate, my, manually associate these 500 contacts with this one company and it just doesn't work? In, Hub, in HubSpot, so we had to find a weird workaround for that. Or the triggers are different in the in the workflows, in the automation flows. Like an Entreport, you can have multiple triggers and uh, that then sort of come together, like 
start at the top with multiple triggers that come together and HubSpot, you can only put one at the very top. And that's just different where you think, okay, the devil's in the details. That's the thing. It's, I, I, understand why so, I understand why so many companies are trying to bring everything down into away from point solutions and then into one tool. The issue is that HubSpot wasn't built to solve all the needs. Plus all this, the, the issue is between work between point solutions and a tool like HubSpot is HubSpot's right. great because they have a lot of out of box or they have a lot of like custom integrations which they built themselves, right? So they have a massive integrations library, which is fantastic because they have so many customers and it makes sense for them to go build those integrations. At the same time, as the, the great thing about HubSpot is as well, if they don't have a HubSpot built integration, you're likely to find something on the likes of Zapier. Right. You know, which somebody else has built and then documented. Now, with the documentation, can be a bit questionable, but but um, but it it could somehow work. The issue is with the smaller platforms, like what you just mentioned before, they were using before. They're building their own thing. Yeah, focused on them and them alone for a number of years because they probably don't have the cash or the the customer base to be going and focusing on building APIs for Mm -hmm. tool X Y Z. You know. Which is which makes perfect sense, right? At some point in the journey for a tech company, they typically say, "Okay, let's put a focus, or let's make it an OKR to focus on more <laughs> integrations." But it's something that the tech team needs to work on, which is taking t- time away from being focused on their own product, right? So, right, and it, yeah, and a lot of times this stuff is not obviously a revenue generator. You know, I mean, I think this is probably a a, a situation in every business, but you know, for us at Apunk, we make money by uh, placing candidates uh, with clients. Um, what doesn't obviously generate money directly is fixing an API interface. No, no, it's for sure. It's it's indirectly with, with tech companies, it can make sense and it, from, a, from a revenue perspective, but it's very hard to draw that red line through it to say, okay, like this is directly attributable to revenue, you know? Um, Maybe a kind of if you have an, an existing customer base that requires it and it it's then enabling some expansion revenue, then perhaps maybe if you're attracting some new business because you've had that, but whether or not they're going to choose you anyway is questionable, right? So who knows? But uh, super interesting. Yeah. And yeah, and there's a lot of work that has to be done before it's ready to be scaled up too. Like now we're, now that the interface is working, we've got, uh, we had to make some organizational changes too. Um, to be able to to take our entire pool of candidates and start to uh, to work with them auto- automatically in terms of pulling in status updates, but to do that, I mean, we had to have the interface to host, but then we had to have a concept for who we're going to write first and what we're going to ask, and then we had to figure out, okay, if I'm going to be generating twice as many inquiries a week as we're used to handling in the organization, how are we going to talk to so many people every week? How are we going to do that? Mm-hmm. So those were things we had to figure out. Another big mindset thing also for me, because I'm kind of a, I don't want to say I'm a perfectionist, but I guess I kind of am, but you know, a typical straight A student, have to get good grades, make sure you don't make any mistakes. And the thing is when you want to scale up, you have to be prepared to make mistakes and do stuff that's not going to work and then figure out as quickly as possible how to fix the, the problems that come up or deal with the situations that you can't anticipate. And that's been a, a very interesting journey to go through that process. For sure. I mean, that's the key to marketing just generally though. 
You need yeah. to be able to fail, but fail quickly and be able to set it right before it really breaks anything. <laughs> that's that's my learning with it, right? Yeah. And it's been fun too. I mean, just in the past few weeks, we we did one, we swapped out one email where we thought, just we can do this better. And we got an uplift for 23% of responses, not just clicks, but people who actually responded and filled out the form like, oh, <laughs> actually, now we need to, to make sure we set up proper A-B testing for this entire, it's a set of three emails. We need to set up A-B tests for all of that and be really diligent and careful now with the statistics because we're going to send in the next, let's say in the next six months, we're planning on uh, sending more than 50,000 people to this sequence. And we're like, whoa, okay, if we can do a 23% uplift with one of the three me uh, emails, we got to be a lot more careful about testing the emails, testing all of the assets, and tracking the cohort, the cohorts really carefully uh, to make sure that we are not drawing the wrong conclusions or, you know, com comparing apples and oranges, that kind of thing. That sounds awesome, man. That sounds awesome. Well, hey, look, I just, uh, just interested in time here. So I think we've, we've covered right onto the hour. So mm. Andy, I think we called it that for today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, um, pleasure on mine. Where can people find you, Andy? Uh, my... Favorite place to be found is uh, at the APUNC website or at LinkedIn. Perfect. We'll add all the details in the description of this. Uh, Andy, thanks so much again for your time. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, yeah, look forward to speaking again in the future. All right. Yeah, you're welcome. Take care. Thanks so much, guys. This has been another episode of This Is Your Captain Speaking. Look forward to more content over the next couple of weeks. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy.